minute and cultivate our motivation. And really feel the light at the prospect of listening to teachings on emptiness. And even though the topic is difficult, it's very rare and special to have teachings on this topic. And also the understanding of emptiness is what leads us to liberation, enabling us to become an arhat and then a Buddha. So the long-term value of hearing these teachings and thinking about them and meditating on them is really incomprehensible. And so let's generate the motivation to listen, think, and meditate for the long-term purpose of becoming Buddhist for the benefit of each and every sentient being. Okay. Uh, I'm not doing a lot of review on the, the uh, you know, talks from the previous week. I'm kind of counting on you to review your notes and ask questions. Um, when people don't ask questions, then either they haven't understood enough to ask a question, which could be either because the teaching, you know, the speaker doesn't make any sense, or because they aren't reviewing their, their notes. So I don't know what to say about that. Um, but I would suggest really reviewing your notes and, and also listening to the, um, the teaching again. I think we put them, the audio goes on the website and the video also goes on the website. Um, I think the person who's putting the video on the website and, and doing the directory is a little bit behind. We depend a lot on volunteers to, to do this. And so when the volunteers are very busy with their lives, um, it takes them some time to put these things up. But I know this person has a very good motivation, and so at some time, hopefully, the videos will be up, and they will be up easy to do directory so that you can find them and research them. Um, okay, so last week we talked about uh, the example of the car, remember? And is the car uh, one with its parts? Is it different from its parts? Trying to see if we can find an inherently existent car somewhere and really doing some research about how the car relates to the car parts. Okay, so this is um, the, the way of thinking. The first five points came from Nagarjuna and the last two, making seven, came from Chandrakirti. So just to review them, we were seeing if the car was one with its parts, okay, seeing if it was different from its parts, so if it's inherently one, if it's inherently different, you have to put inherently in some of these. To see if it inherently possesses its parts. Um, to see if the car depends upon its parts inherently or if the car is what the parts inherently depend upon and then whether the car is the collection of the parts and whether it's the shape and the arrangement of the parts. So we went through all those seven points last time. Okay? So that the example of the car is to get us thinking and to understand this kind of reasoning because if the car existed inherently, it would have to exist in any in one of those seven ways. If it can't be found in any of those seven ways, then it doesn't exist inherently. Okay? So that's the example. We're going to move on now to the real thing that we're researching which is the self, the I, me, that ex 
incredibly important, most central thing in the entire universe. Me, I, okay? And we're going to research how this I, this big self, um, exists. Okay. But first, before we do that, let's just talk a little bit about the benefits of this kind of reasoning so that, you know, uh, because seeing the benefits of something helps us to uh, get more interested in it. Okay. Um, and before that, I also have to say that, okay, the car, through the previous reasoning, the car, we've shown that the car does not exist inherently. Okay. Now, also, all of the car parts, they themselves also don't exist inherently because even though something like the wheel is a part in relationship to the car, in relationship to its own parts, the wheel is the whole or the part possessor. Okay? So you can see that these things called the whole or the part possessor is dependent on what from what perspective you're talking about. Okay, so in when we look from the perspective of the parts of the wheel, what are the parts of the wheel? The rim, the hub, the the spokes, the the inner tube of the tire, the rubber of the tire, the um, what do you call the shiny thing on the outside? Hubcap. Huh? Lug bolts. Okay, so you have all these different parts of the of the tire. Okay, so in relationship to them, then the tire is the whole. And we can examine to see if the tire inherently exists in the same way that we examine if the car inherently exists. Okay, so you examine each thing in relationship to its own parts. When you prove that the whole or the part possessor does not exist inherently, then if you just shift, if you have a correct inference and deep meditation about this, then if you just shift your um, perspective to that of the part and see the part as the whole, as the main thing to see if the part is um, is inherently existent, then it becomes very easy to see that the part too isn't inherently existent. So the idea is that if you burn the car, you burn all the car parts. So if you find that the car is not inherently existent, then the car parts also can't be inherently existent. Okay. In a similar way, if you burn all the parts of car, you, there's just not going to be any car. Your car is burned. Okay. So similarly, if you see that all the parts are empty, then you also see that the whole is Okay. Now, the advantage of this kind of reasoning is that um, it refutes the absolutist view. So, the absolutist view is that the car inherently exists. When we do this kind of reasoning, we show the car doesn't inherently exist. So, we've, we've canceled out the absolutist view. That's the first benefit. The second benefit is that this reasoning only refutes inherent existence. It doesn't refute conventional existence. And so in that way, the reasoning doesn't go to the nihilistic extreme. Because okay? we've only refuted inherent not all existence. And then the third benefit of this kind of reasoning is that when we develop it over time and with samadhi and in deep meditative equipoise, then we come to be able to see the emptiness directly, non-conceptually, and that direct non-conceptual perception of emptiness is what actually removes first the acquired afflictions and then the innate afflictions. And so it leads us to liberation and to enlightenment. Okay. But we have to start with the reasoning. Because yeah. we have to start with just an under, a conceptual understanding 
of why things don't inherently exist. We don't just sit there and say, no inherent existence, no inherent existence, and, you know, things are empty, things are empty, because we have no clue what any of that means. Okay, so that's why we have to generate this conceptual understanding. Okay, now we're going to apply it to the person, the self, me, and see if we inherit it. So we're going to go through the set, the same reasonings. Okay, am I one with my parts, in other words, the aggregates? Am I separate from my parts? Okay, uh, do I inherently possess any of my aggregates? My body, my physical and mental aggregates. Am I de- is the I dependent upon them? Or is the I what the aggregates depend on? Or is the I the collection of the aggregates? Or is it the shape of the aggregates? So we're going to examine in all these ways. Remember that the last five ways all can be subsumed in the first two ways, seeing if the self is one with the aggregates or separate from the aggregates. Okay, now this part gets really, really interesting. Okay, when we start to see if the person is one with the aggregates or different from the aggregates. Yeah, because it brings up a lot of, we're going to go off on a few different tangents here in, in the process of showing that the I is not inherently one with the aggregate. So we'll, we'll take a few tangents, but the tangents are really, really interesting. Okay, so, is the self one with the aggregate? If it were, okay, if it were, we would have the following undesirable consequences occur. So I'll just list the consequences. And then we'll go through and talk about each one in more in more depth. Okay, so the consequences. If the self and the aggregates were this exactly the same, inherently the same, the same in every respect, then first undesirable consequence is there would be no need to assert the existence of, of a person. Okay. Second undesirable consequence is the person would be, there would either be many people or there would be only one aggregate. Third undesirable consequence, the agent and the object or the whole and the parts would be one, indifferentiable. And the fourth consequence is the person would inherently arise and disintegrate. Okay? It would arise, it would come into being inherently, it would die or disintegrate inherently. Okay, let's look at those. Okay, so first, if the self were inherently one with the aggregates, we would have no, there would be no need to even assert a self, because if, let's say, the self were inherently one with the body, then they're one in every respect, so then having the word I would just be redundant, okay? Because if they're one in every respect, all you need to do is say body, and you would already understand I. Or if the self were inherently one with the um, with the mind, all you would have to do is say mind, and you would understand I, because they're inherently one. Okay, so saying I asserting a self would be superfluous; it would be redundant. You wouldn't need it. Okay, and also, if you said the word I, like I'm talking, yeah. Then, if you if if the eye were one with the mind, then it would be the mind talking. Or if you would say I'm walking, since the eye is inherently one with the mind, then it would be the same as saying the mind is walking. Or if the eye is inherently one with the body, when you say I'm thinking, it would be the same as saying my body is thinking. 
because the I and whichever aggregate you thought the, the I was union oneness with were exactly the same. Okay? So when, if, if, the, if the self were inherently one with any of the aggregates, our conventional use of language just becomes crazy. Are you, are you getting what I'm saying? If the self were the body, okay, then you don't need to say the word self. All you need to do is say the word body because self would be understood. So then when you say, I'm thinking, you wouldn't need the I. You could just say, my body is thinking. Does that make sense? Is your body thinking? Or if you say that the, uh, that the self is one with the mind, with one of the, with the consciousness, any of the consciousnesses, then when you say, I'm walking, it would be the same as saying, my mind is walking. Is your mind walking down the street? Not walk. Okay? So these are all undesirable consequences. You have to think about them. Why they would come about if the self and the aggregates were inherently the same. Because remember, inherently the same means they're completely undifferentiable. Exactly the same in every respect. Which would mean also linguistically. Okay? Then the second undesirable consequence of the body of the, of the self and the aggregates being one is because there is one self then you should only have one aggregate but we have five aggregates so you have to eliminate four of them to say that the self is the aggregate because you could only have one aggregate so remember we have five aggregates body feeling discrimination conditioning factors, and consciousness. So if the I were one with the aggregates, then the I is one, it, you could only have one aggregate. That's not true. Or, because the aggregates are five, you would have to have five selves, one self for each of the aggregates. Do you have five selves? You know, I've heard, you know, there's multiple personality disorder, but, you know, this is exactly what would happen. You would have one self for each of the aggregates. Okay, that doesn't make any sense either. Okay. Third uh, undesirable consequence is the agent and the object would be one. In other words, the body and the aggregates would be one. Yeah. Or the appropriator and the appropriated would be one. And here... This word appropriator and appropriated, it's a difficult term. The, the Tibetan is lenpa, or it's uh, upadana in Pali and Sanskrit, and that's also translated as grass, okay? Because it's, it's um, you know, like in the, the ninth link of dependent arising, grass. Um, okay, so the term, the... the appropriator and the appropriated, or the grasper and the grasped, okay? The reason they use these terms is because the, the self is designated in dependence upon the aggregates, so we say, like, the person took this body, the person took these aggregates. Well, while we say that conventionally, don't understand the word took as... You know, somebody, this inherently existent person sitting up in the sky who took that body, who says, oh, which body? Oh, that one. Oh, which feeling aggregate? That one. It's not like that, okay? So don't understand the word take or grasp or appropriated to be like you chose, you know, that there's an inherently existent person that's separate from the body that chose. But we do say conventionally, you know, somebody took that those aggregates. There's the person who appropriated the aggregates. Or the aggregates were appropriated by the person, you know. What it's basically meaning is that there's a, 
a relationship between the aggregates and the person. Yeah? But if they were inherently existent, okay, then you couldn't differentiate the person and the aggregates because they would again be completely one. So then you couldn't say that, you know, the person took this body or, you know, the aggregates were taken by the person. Or you couldn't call the, ag- the uh, aggregates, the aggregates, you know, the mere, the uh, grasped aggregates, because there has to be a grasper, which is the self. Okay? So again, don't think that there's an independent self which grasps the aggregates. It just means basically that there's a relationship between the aggregates and the self. Okay. Then the fourth undesirable consequence, what is, if the aggregates and the person were inherently one, yeah, and the same, then the self would be inherently produced and it, or it would arise inherently and disintegrate inherently. Because if you have an inherently existent self, then it comes into being inherently and it goes out of being inherently. Okay? Which means it doesn't need to depend on any causes and conditions. Which also calls into question, you know, because the self is arising and ceasing moment by moment, and this life self arises and this life self ceases, it calls into question, what is the whole relationship between one moment of the self and the next moment of the self? Okay? Is one moment of the self and the next moment of the self, are they inherently the same? Are they inherently different? What's the relationship between them? And this gets really, really interesting. Okay? So, if the self arose inherently and disintegrated inherently, so if the self arose inherently and disintegrated inherently, there's three um, faults that would occur with that. Okay, so under this fourth point, there's three more. Okay. So the three un- untenable points that would happen if the self uh, were um, arose and disintegrated inherently is, one, that recalling events from previous lives would be impossible. Two, actions that we did would not bring results. We wouldn't experience the results of actions we did. And three, we could be able to experience the results of actions that other people did. Okay, I'm going to explain these. Don't make faces yet. Okay, so here's where the topic, okay, let's look at the first one. Recalling events from previous lives would be impossible. Okay, so if the self Yes, the person arose inherently and ceased inherently. Then it would be unrelated to any other moments of the self on that continuum. If that were the case, then we couldn't remember previous lives. Nobody could remember previous lives, including the Buddha, because the present life would be totally unrelated to the previous life. The person of the present life would be totally unrelated to the person of the previous life. Okay, in the Jataka tales, the Buddha talks about events from his previous life. So, for example, there is one life in which he was King Mandata. Okay? So the Buddha says, in that life, I was King Monditor. Okay. Now, if the Buddha, as a person, inherently rose and inherently ceased, then the Buddha and King Monditor would be completely distinct and unrelated people. 
in which case how could the Buddha say in that past life I was King Mandata he couldn't say that because they're totally distinct unrelated people that have absolutely no connection one with the other okay and in addition not only could the Buddha not say in that life I was King, King Mandata but he couldn't uh, remember any events from that life either because the people were totally separate it would be as ridiculous as the Buddha remembering something from my life thinking that he was me in a previous life we're totally separate people okay so on the other hand if the Buddha and King Mandata were inherently the same then the Buddha is an enlightened being King Bandita is a sentient being so then a Buddha and an, and a sentient being would have to be the same a Buddha and a sentient being can't be the same so when the Buddha is saying in that life I was King Bandita what's he talking about who's the I that was King Bandita because if that I is inherently different from King Mandata they have no relationship if that I is inherently one with King Mandata then a Buddha and a sentient being are exactly the same so what relate, what's going on when the Buddha says in that life I was King Mandata okay so there's this thing called the general self and the specific self and here we're talking about conventionalities okay we're talking about how we relate to things okay so for example I have previous lives this life and future lives when I say I have previous lives this life and I'll have future lives that's the general I that's an I that is imputed or designated in dependence upon whatever aggregates have to be there at the happen to be there at the time. So it could be previous life's aggregates, it could be present life's aggregates, it could be future life's aggregates. There could be an I that's that's designated in dependence upon any of these aggregates. So when you're talking from the viewpoint of the general I, it, that I is imputed in dependence upon what, whatever aggregate, okay? Yeah. Oh, so it's it's just yeah, it's just it's just a merely imputed I. It's not a findable I. Yeah. Oh, on the other hand, okay, not on the other hand. But in addition to the specific I, in addition to this general I, okay, there's also specific eyes. So the specific eye of this life for me is children. Okay? Let's say in my previous life I was Harry. Yeah? And in my future life I'm going to be, you know, Harry. Uh, no, that is something that sounds different. Well, Harriet. Okay. Past life I was Harry. Future life I'm going to be Harriet. Okay? So, the specific eye of the past life is Harry. Harry was imputed in dependence upon those aggregates in the previous life. Okay? Harry was a guy. Imputed in dependence on a male, male body yeah whatever mind feeling discrimination conditioning factors were there that that was independence from those aggregates we impute Harry independence upon this body and whatever my mental aggregates we impute children that's the specific eye of this life in future life let's say we could project ourselves to future life I'm going to be Harriet okay so Harriet's going to have a totally different body, a totally different mind, okay? Not unrelated to mine, but different. So Harriet is going to be, is the specific self of the future life, 
So when I say I, uh, let, let's, let's say when the Buddha is saying, I remember when I was King Mandatai, that's in the viewpoint of the general eye that covers all three times, past, present, and future. It's just the general eye. That eye remembers being King Mandatai. It, he didn't, he, at that time, he wasn't referring to I, Shakyamuni Buddha. Yeah, was King Mandatai. Because Shakyamuni Buddha is the specific eye of that specific life. In the same way that Chudran is the specific eye of my life, Harry was the specific eye of the previous life. Harriet is the specific eye of the, the, the future life. Okay? Harriet and Harry and Chudran are different. They're different. They're not inherently different. They're not inherently different. There's a relationship between them. Okay? Harry ceased and, you know, the continuum of, of mind went on and, you know, became the basis of designation for children. And when children ceases, that the continuity of that consciousness will go on and become the basis of designation for, for Harriet. But they're, they're different people. Okay. When I go to, the, to get my driver's license, I don't say Harry is applying for the license. Okay. Harry is dead. Yeah. Harriet does not exist. Harriet also can't apply for the driver's license. Only children can. But they aren't three distinct people. And the general eye can refer to all of them, okay? Because that general eye exists in dependence upon the specific eyes. Hmm? In the same way, when you say, uh, when I was a baby, okay? Or you say, I remember being a baby, or I remember being a toddler. Chances are greater when you remember being a toddler. Okay, anybody remember being a toddler? Yeah, okay. So I, when you say, I remember to be a toddler, I remember being a toddler. Who's that I that remembers being a toddler? Is it the I of July 24th, 2008? Is that the I that was the toddler? Are you the same person now as that toddler? Are you? I hope not. I don't want to change your diapers. Okay. Because if you were the same person as that toddler, and if you were inherently the same as that toddler, you would be walking around in diapers. Or that toddler would be sitting here in class taking notes. Okay. So when you say that, yeah, like, I remember being a toddler. Or if we say, you know, Venerable Chuni remembers being a toddler. In that way, Venerable Chuni becomes the generalized, and the toddler is a specific eye because it's a specific moment in Venerable Chuni's continuum. Okay? So what is the general eye and what is the specific eye? also depends upon what viewpoint you're looking at it from. Just as before when we were analyzing the car, the wheel being a part or the wheel being the whole depended upon which viewpoint you were looking at it from. Okay? So children can be the general eye that covers all the moments of this life. Yeah? And it's the general eye when in reference to one moment. When I say yesterday I did something, it's the general eye that did something yesterday. It's not the eye of today that did something yesterday. Because today's eye and yesterday's eye are not the same. Are they? Yeah. They're not entirely different either. The 
they're not inherently the same, and they're also not totally separate. There's a relationship between them. One caused the other. But the eye of today and the eye of yesterday are different. Okay? So we have the, the, the general eye and then the specific eye that exists in relationship to it. And the specific eye can also become a general eye in reference to the moments of eye that cover it. For example, when we say children, you know, if we say children's life, okay, that consists of many different moments, doesn't it? Okay, and it consists of many, many eyes. There's the children of September 18th, 1950, of September 19th, 1950, on and on and on up to, you know, uh, July 24th, 2008. You know, maybe there will be a ch- children in July, you know, uh, a children that is the July 25th, 2008 children. We don't know that yet. We'll find out tomorrow. Yeah. Okay? So, all these are, di- are different. They're different people, but they're not inherently different because they exist in the same continuum and one causes the other. Okay? But, if they were inherently existent, then there would be no relationship between them. One couldn't cause the other. They would be totally distinct. And in that way, I could never say, I remember when I was a toddler. Or I could never say, I remember yesterday. Because the eye of today and the eye of yesterday are different. Okay. Or even if that eye, when we say, I remember yesterday, even if that's the general eye of this lifetime, you know, if it's not inherently one with the eye of yesterday, then we can't say, I remember yesterday, because they would be two different eyes, unrelated. You know what I'm talking about? So it's very interesting. I find this very interesting because it makes us examine how we use the word I and exactly what are we referring to. Like when you say, I remember being a toddler. Who exactly is that I that remembers being a toddler? You know, if things are inherently existent, you should be able to pinpoint that I that remembers being the toddler. Or pinpoint the I that was the toddler. But when you try and pinpoint any of those, you can't do it. Why? Because things are not inherently existent. If they were inherently existent, we should be able to pinpoint everything. There should be an objectifiable locus, which is the thing that we're talking about. But when we search for that objectifiable locus that is the thing, we can't find it. Hmm? Okay. Now, this this kind of confusion, it comes up um, like sometimes we've done really negative deeds in a previous life. And then we say, oh, I'm such an awful person because I did that. You know, I, I, you know, I lied to somebody who I really care about. What an awful person I am. Okay? When we think like that and then we start beating up on ourselves and feeling guilty and, and having low self-esteem and saying we're such an awful person, at that moment... We're grasping at inherent existence, and we're thinking that the present I is the same I as the one that lied to the person we cared about. Is the present I the same I as the one who, re- who lied to th- that other person? No, it's not exactly the same person. Because if the present I and the previous I were exactly the same, inherently one, 
They would be the same in all respects, and we would still be lying to that person. We would have never aged. We would have never thought anything different. No time would have passed. We would still be that previous person. But that's not the case, is it? So you see, when we're sitting there guilt-tripping ourselves over something that happened in the past, that is a very vivid example of grasping at the true existence of the person. Isn't it? Because it's confusing the present person with the past person, thinking that they're totally the same. Or that the specific eye of this life is one and the same with the eye that told the lie. Or that the present eye is the same eye as the one that told the, uh, the lie. But that's not the case whatsoever. Okay. So this is why, you know, it's very important not to guilt trip ourselves and why guilt is affliction. Because you can see that guilt is based on grasping a true existence and thinking that there's a truly existent eye that is unchangeable, that did that negative action in the past, and that still exists exactly the same way now. Okay, so that's grasping at a truly existing time. Going to the other extreme and saying the past is past, I'm not going to experience any result of what I did in the past. You know, karma doesn't exist. I can do anything I want because I lied then, but I'm not the same person now. Okay. Then that's also based on grasping a truly a true existence. But it's seeing the present eye is truly, you know, unrelated and separate from the past eye. And it's not considering that there's a cause and effect and effect relationship between these two eyes, that they exist as different moments in the same continuum, and that therefore the present eye can experience the results of what the previous eye did. Okay. If the present eye couldn't experience the results of what the previous eye did, then if you studied in the past, you wouldn't know anything now. Or if the previous eye got the diploma, the present eye wouldn't have it. Okay, because they would be two totally distinct people. Okay, so the correct idea, you know, how do all these different eyes that are different moments, in, you know, in the continuum exist in relationship to each other, independence upon each other? Okay, they exist dependently. So therefore, even though we aren't the same person as our previous life, we're experiencing the results of what our previous life did. And even though we're not going to be the same person in a future life, that future life person will experience the results of what we did, and we will call that future life person I. And there will be a sense of I connected with that future life person. And the future life person may look back upon this life and say, when I was children, you know, I made offerings to the Buddha in the morning even though I was half asleep when I did so. But she didn't, you know, I didn't give up. So some good karma was created, so I'm experiencing the results of what children did. Even though she was half asleep when she made offerings every morning. Okay? Otherwise, there would be no relationship between them. So, you see, you know, sometimes when people um, are, are just getting introduced to the idea of reincarnation or rebirth, they say, why should I care about, care about my future life? It's a different person than I am now. It's true, it is a different person, but it's not an inherently different person. It exists in the same continuum. Because somebody who says, why should I care about future lives? It's a different person than who I am now. Is, should also say, why should I care about what happens to me when I'm old? Because 
the person, the elderly person, is a different person than I am now. The elderly person is a different person, isn't it? But they aren't inherently different. And for that reason, people save money to have money when they're old. So the past and future eyes, or past, present, and future eyes, they're not inherently the one. They're not inherently different. Yeah. But they all exist in relationship to each other, being different moments on the continuum. Yeah. And sometimes you put all those, collapse all those moments into one and say during children's life and which could encompass many many different eyes but remember all those eyes are merely designated yeah okay you following me so where you get tangled up is you know think about it a little bit and you'll get tangled up and where you get tangled up is when you start to think of the eye as inherently existent. Yeah, it's always what happens. Okay, so that that's one undesirable effect, that we couldn't remember the past if we, you know, if the eye arose and ceased inherently. Second undesirable thing is that the actions we did wouldn't, wouldn't bring any results. And again, that would be because the previous life eye and the present life eye, or put it this way, the present life eye and the future life eye are inherently different. So we don't experience any results in the future of what we're doing now. And the present eye wouldn't experience any results of what we did in the past because they're inherently separate. So that would totally destroy cause and effect. And not only cause and effect as it, as it is in karma and its effects, but even the cause and effect that normally functions in this lifetime, like going, you know, applying for a job so you can get a job. You know, they happen in a sequence, and one affects the other, going to school so you can get a job, or saving your money so you'll have some, you know, something for retirement. Or if you're looking to future lives, being generous with your money so that you'll have some money in a future life. Okay? Different ways of thinking here when you bring karma into it. Okay? So our actions, we can see our actions do have effects. But they couldn't have effects if the I were inherently existent. Okay? Similarly, the third undesirable consequence is that we could experience the results of other people's actions. So if my eye is totally separate from my previous lives, and all my previous lives were inherently different people, yeah, totally unrelated, then just as I am totally unrelated to you, my previous lives and you are equal in being totally unrelated to the present me. So, in that case, if I could experience the results of my past life, I should be able to experience the results of the actions you were doing, too, because you and my past lives are equal in being inherently different from me. Okay? Yeah. If I were... Okay, if my present life is inherently different than my previous lives, then my previous life is inherently other. I'm totally unrelated. Then me and you, are we the same person? No, we're different people. Okay, we're unrelated, aren't we? You're not me, I'm not you. You and my previous lives are equal in being unrelated to me. You're both unrelated to me. So then, if I could still experience self of my own previous lives, then I should be able to be 
experience the results of your actions because my previous lives and you are equal in being different from me. Think about it. <laughs> are you and my previous lives me? That's not the issue. What's the issue? You just proved in the one before that, you, that past actions would bring results if you were in so, past past whose past actions they are, why we can experience the results? So we said that I couldn't, that if I were inherently one with, or different than my previous lives, I couldn't experience the results of my own actions. Right. So, if that's so, then how could you experience the... Because when something's inherently existent, you can say, and, and, and if, if somebody... If, okay, the previous one you said if they're inherently one, you couldn't experience the results of the past action. So now you're saying why if they're inherently different could you experience? We're not saying that you could. You're saying if. Yeah, because clearly me and my previous lives, if they were inherently different, I couldn't experience the results of them, of what I did in the previous lives. Because that's inherently different. But if somebody wants to say, but I do experience the results of my previous lives, and they still are inherently different, then you say, but this other person over here is also different. So then you could experience the results of their negative, their actions as well. Because this one and, and your previous lives are the same in being different from your present life. Got it? Okay. Okay. Then also, if earlier and later moments of the self were inherently different and separate, the future self could arrive with, arise without the present self ceasing. Because they're inherently different and unrelated. So cause and effect wouldn't work at all. Because usually the cause has to cease for the result to come into being. Yesterday's self has to cease for today's self to arise. If they're inherently uh, different, then they have no bearing on each other. So yesterday's self would not have to cease for today's self to arise. They're totally different people. Okay? So you see, when we talk about inherent existence, we also destroy cause and effect. So this is the interesting point because the lower schools say that things need to be inherently existent, otherwise cause and effect wouldn't work and wouldn't operate. The Prasangikas say, You're, you got it backwards. If things were inherently existent, cause and effect couldn't operate because cause and effect would be totally unrelated to each other. Because something that's inherently existent is independent and unrelated and cut off from everything else. So Carlson, he can say exactly the opposite. If for cause and effect to operate, things need to be empty of inherent existence. Okay. So whereas the lower schools use inherent existence as a way to to say cause and effect works, Prasenika say the emptiness of inherent existence show that cause and effect works. It's totally the opposite. Yeah. So this really gets kind of interesting when you think about it, you know, because you can, you know, you study the lower tenant schools, you know, many of them are Buddhist tenant schools. And, you know, they say things arise due to cause and condition and all. But if you look a little bit deeper, how can you say things arise due to causes and conditions, but assert that they're inherently existent at the same time? Because hmm? if it's inherently existent, it's one isolated, identifiable thing and it must be permanent, must be unchanging, because it doesn't depend on anything else. If it depended on something else, it would change. But if it's inherently existing, it can't depend. Okay. 
Okay. So just to sum up here, okay, is the whole point is that different moments of the self, they're not inherently one and they're not inherently existent. Why? Because they exist by being merely labeled. They are merely labeled. They are not identifiable, solid people that you can find somewhere. It's just a merely labeled I at any moment of time. Okay? And so, still, because they're merely labeled and they're dependent, later moments of the self experience the result of previous moments of the self. And previous moments of the self create the cause for what later moments of the self is, is going to experience. Okay. So therefore, it's good to, to observe the law of karma and its effects. Yeah. Because things are empty, observing karma is very, very important. Okay. Now, just to summarize here, yeah, why the self can't be one, inherently one with the aggregates, because that was the, the main point we were discussing here. So the, we're going to go through the reasons now as a way of summary in a slightly different order. Okay? The self and the can't be inherently one with the aggregates because, one, asserting a self would be unnecessary because they're completely the same. Okay? Two, either the, you would have one self because the aggregates are one, or you would have many selves because the aggregates are many. Three, the appropriator and the appropriated would be the same. Can't say that either. Four, recalling lives from pre- recalling events from previous lives would be impossible because the present person and the previous person are totally unrelated. Five, our actions would not produce results because the future self would be totally unrelated to this self. And six, we could experience the results of actions that other people do because other people are equally as unrelated to to us as our pre, the previous moments of ourself are. Okay, so those are the absurd consequences that arise if we say that the self is inherently one with the aggregate. Just take some contemplation. Yeah, and that's why if you can, you know, if you don't get it the first time, review your notes, your notes, listen to the talk again, watch the video again, discuss it with your friends, think about it. Yeah. In your daily life action, kind of, you know, well, which eye is this that is doing this? Yeah, is it the general eye? Is it the specific eye? And what makes something a general eye and what makes it a specific eye? And if the general eye and specific eye were inherently existent, then how come children at one point can be a general eye and at another point can be a specific eye? Because if they were inherently existent, they could only be one or the other. Okay? So just, you know, as you're going through your day, whenever you're thinking I, try and, well, what is this I? Yeah. I remember. Okay? <laughs> so when we're having a disagreement about how to do something, he said, I remember you said to do a da-da-da-da-da. And I say, I don't remember that. Then stop and ask, who's the I that said that? And who's the I that is remembering or not remembering having said that or having heard that? And are there, is there a relationship between them? When you, when you say to me, oh, you know, uh, you said you would do this, and now you're flaking out on me. You know, or no, that's not a good example. Um, you, you said you would do this, and you flaked out on me. Then I get offended. 
But why, why do I get offended if that was what yesterday's self did? If yesterday's self and today's self have no relationship? They clearly have some relationship, cause and effect relationship. But also, if they're not exactly the same, why should I get offended? Yeah? <laughs> so either way, no reason to get offended. I need to remember that next time I'm offended. Yeah? Because who, who's being, why, if, if the past life did it, and I and my, my, my yes, yes, yesterday's self did it, okay, and yesterday's self and today's self are totally unrelated, then there's no reason for me to get offended if you criticize yesterday's self. Okay? If, if I'm grasping on the inherent existence, which I'm always doing, then, actually, I shouldn't be getting offended. But I am getting offended. Why am I getting offended? Because another part of me knows there's a relationship between past, previous self and this self. On the other hand, if I'm holding that the two selves are the same, that I'm, I'm the same as uh, yesterday's self, okay, then... There's no reason for me to get offended because today's self didn't do that negative action. Or you could just as well say there is a reason to get offended because they're the same. So you see, when you assert inherent existence, everything gets very tangled up. Yeah. Whereas when things exist by being merely labeled, there's much more fluidity here. You know, and we aren't stuck in the corner of having to identify exactly what is that thing that we're referring to when we say I. Like when you say I'm walking down the street. And things are inherently existent. You need to find that I that's walking down the street. What are you going to point to that's the I that's walking down the street? The body's walking down the street. So then if the body's the I, then you don't need to say I, you can say body's walking down the street. Then there wouldn't be a person walking down the street. But when you say I'm thinking, body would be thinking. Okay? Actually, we're over time, but go ahead and ask anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. You know what? Mm-hmm. There's no personality Okay, so when we're talking about the general eye, is that general eye a personality? Can you attach a personality personality to it? Okay, if the general eye had a a real personality, then you would have the same personality in the previous life as you do this life. And your personality in the future life would be exactly the same. And you could never become a Buddha because you couldn't change. You know, this is a good question because lots of times people, when they talk about, like, the incarnation of a Lama, they talk about it as if the, the newly incarnated, the future, the next life, is inherently existent. I remember when Lama Yeshe, you know, was reborn, Lama Osha, and the people go, did he recognize you? You know, oh, does he have the same personality as Lama? You know, and it's as if if people would look at, at Lama Osa and think that it was exactly the same person as Lama Yeshi. But Lama Osa is a different person from Lama Yeshi. Lama Yeshi had one personality, Lama Osa has another personality. You can see that with the 13th and 14th Dalai Lamas. They have very different personalities. Yeah. But even... One person in one lifetime has different personalities. 
because you're different than you were a year ago. You have a different personality than you had a year ago. Yeah, don't you? And that's why we practice the dharmas, because our personality changes. It's not an inherently existent thing. You know? And when we label I, the I is not labeled in independence upon, you know, a fixed, solid personality that doesn't change. Because if it did, it would be impossible to become a Buddha. Yeah? Likewise, you couldn't assert, you couldn't say the general I at a specific moment. You can't say the general I at a specific moment. You can't, like, cut a section of it. No. You're always talking about a continuum. Yeah. Yeah, general eye is always, it's labeled, the general eye is labeled independence upon many moments of the continuum. Okay? And the moments of those continuum, they are nominally different, but they are not inherently different. So just to remind people that next week will be online like this, and then August 7th and August 14th will be on the telephone.